trauma has on children's ability to learn in traditional classrooms is recognised. For children who have experienced abuse and neglect, their behaviour is often highly reactive, aggressive, withdrawn or unmotivated. They struggle to learn, to make positive relationships or be influenced positively by teachers and school staff. Teachers become more and more frustrated and discouraged as they attempt to teach this vulnerable group of students. Even though it is in relationships that have hurt students with developmental trauma, it is known that they must find safe relationships to learn and heal. Forming those relationships with children who have been hurt and no longer trust adults is not easy. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Sean Phillips, Dr. Phillips is an adjunct professor at Queen's University and is currently involved in helping her local school boards develop trauma-informed classrooms and schools using Dan Hughes's model of dyadic developmental practice. She is also a clinical psychologist in private practice in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. She specialises in working with children in foster care and their foster and adoptive parents. Dr. Phillips is the co-author of the book, Belonging, a Relationship-Based Approach for Trauma-Informed Education. Dr. Phillips will be interviewed by Dr. Govind Krishnamurthy. I hope you find this interview interesting. Hi everyone and welcome to Trauma-Informed Education. My name is Dr. Gavin Krishnamurthy. I'm not here with Kay today, it's just me and I have the privilege of talking to uh, Dr. Sean Phillips. Um, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Right, well we might get right into it. Um, so this is a podcast for educators, so I wanted to start by asking you about your experiences in primary and high school, or you know, primary or secondary school, and how that might sort of influence the work that you do today. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's sort of it's always interesting to look back and wonder about those experiences and how they inform our work now. And sometimes we're surprised by just how profoundly they organize our experience. So for me, I did a lot of moving around. I was born in Wales, lived in England, lived in Scotland, moved back down to England, moved to Canada. So there were a lot of changes in schools. Um, it, my, my mother is a teacher. So a lot of our moves were centered around, is there a good school for the kids to go to? And if so, then we can move there because most of my moves were related to my dad's, um, my dad's job. So if I think back, you know, probably like most people, I don't remember a lot of what I learned in different schools, but I'm really aware of some pretty powerful relationships with teachers and their passion for their teaching and their interest in me and interest in my friends. And so those were the teachers I gravitated to. 
So, you know, all the way through, whether it's primary school, junior school, high school, university, um, been through a lot of years of schooling. So then when I became a psychologist and I was starting to assess kids, um, you know, with our traditional testing tools that we're taught about, they really were not helping me understand the kids with developmental trauma, right? Even though we had learned about trauma, um, learn about tools, learn about assessments, they were like, I, I, they're not really helping me understand these kids. And one of the big things that was consistent was that these kids were really not successful in school. So for me, school was a happy place. It was a successful place, had lots of friends, had good relationships with the adults. And these kids that were coming into my office didn't have any of that. School was a miserable place to be. Their relationships were crashing and burning all around them. They were so clumsy socially with their peers and really struggling with teachers who didn't know how to understand them and perhaps really didn't like them. So that's sort of where I started to get interested in, okay, how do I take what I know about trauma and help teachers learn about trauma? How do we help teachers learn about how trauma impacts on kids' brains, how it impacts in you know, what they bring to school every day? And not only just understanding that, but how to respond differently. So I guess really helping teachers be trauma-informed, but also be trauma-responsive. And so that's where it began. And I always had this fantasy because in my assessments, I was like, okay, how do I make this kid have a more successful experience? And how do we modify the day? How do we work with the educators? How do we work with families who are so stressed because they're going to get that next phone call that says, come pick up your kid, right? How do we work with these systems to make it better? So I had this fantasy of, oh, I'd love to have a little, my own little classroom that is trauma-informed. And one of my um, sort of jobs, I guess, or, or passions um, was working with camps, summer camps. I don't know if that's culturally what, you know, a thing in Australia, but it's a real cultural thing in Canada and the, the U.S., and it's a magical way to work with kids. So I'd had that experience and I was like, mm, I could really see kids with developmental trauma benefiting from this way of working with them, you know, lots of outdoor education principles, creating the emotional felt sense of safety before we move them into new learning. So the planets aligned and I, had, I live in a very small town and so a lot of people know my work and I've been talking about attachment and trauma for a very long time. And so I just one time was saying, oh, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And there just happened to be this pocket of money and the ball got going and we ended up getting actually money from a different place, different source um, from our ministry of education. And we opened our belong classroom, which was built on everything I know about, you know, trauma for kids and how it impacts on their brains and trained my staff in, in the DDP principles so that they knew how to respond. You know, I think teachers and educators know that relationships are important, but they get stuck when kids go, mm, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And then they don't know what to do. So it was sort of bringing together the DDP framework and, um, 
bringing them into a school classroom. So that's how Belong happened and how, you know, some of the consulting that I do in school boards, just bringing a new framework to understand and respond to kids. So that was a very long answer. No, that, that was fantastic, Sean. Um, I was thinking about um, your experience of, you know, really grappling with working with those, you know, sometimes really complex issues of helping kids within schools and working with families. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, that's how a lot of how Kay and I met. Kay is a teacher, her background's there, and we were we realized we're working on a common purpose, really, even though we were speaking different languages um, in a way, we were working on that common purpose to keep kids at school and keep them kind of learning. And, and the more, you know, the thing that really changed a lot of that was reading about developmental trauma, Van der Kolk, Bruce Berry, um, of course, um, Dan Hughes's work as well. Um, uh, and in the book, which is fantastic, by the way, and it really comes through about how you work on the ground <laughs> with the kids, which I know um, Kay as well, who's a teacher, would kind of say, you know, reading this, it feels like someone's, you know, actually done the work. Um, Sean, could, could you tell us about um, this idea of the polyvagal theory? And you mentioned that in your book um, and how that has kind of shaped the way you think about what, um, kids need in the classroom and how you can perhaps work with them? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could probably speak for hours on polyvagal theory and how, you know, it's really influenced our, our work as clinicians, but I think it's been really helpful to bring that work into the education system. I, my experience with educators is that, you know, they are a bright, creative group of people. And once they get that science, it's like, oh, okay, I get this. This is not a choice. This is not about a kid choosing to make my day miserable and to really get a sense that of, of trauma being physiological and not psychological and, and offering them a sort of beginning of a journey to say, okay, so if we understand that trauma is physiological and not psychological and that kids could do better, they would, then the traditional responses of meeting challenging behavior with consequences and incentives isn't going to work. So I think the polyvagal theory really helps us, you know, if I, if I just sort of give a quick synopsis, I mean, of Porges's work, right, is that we're understanding that the experience of being abused and neglected shapes our nervous system in ways that makes it really, really difficult to navigate the everyday challenges of living. So kids who have had the luxury of being safe enough in their relationships, well, they can come to school and they can manage the stressors when they don't understand something or they have to wait in line or, you know, you know they don't like that particular subject or they don't like that particular teacher. They can experience that as stressful and they know how to manage it. So they might get slightly irritated and they can make themselves feel better but the kids who haven't had that luxury of safe relationship, they don't know how to do that. So stresses are huge and they're responded to in ways that, um, that are, you know, they're huge responses and they're about danger and life threat because that's what our nervous system is designed to do for us, right? It is constantly saying, are you safe? Are you in danger or are you in life threat? And that 
that ability or our autonomic nervous system is hierarchically hierarchically organized, right? And our felt sense of safety determines what part of that hierarchy is activated. So if we think about the oldest response that we share with reptiles is our freeze response or our immobilized response, which is activated by the dorsal part of our vagus nerve that calls into action that parasympathetic nervous system that pulls into action the organs below the diaphragm that says, hey, you need to shut everything down here. It's, you know, behavioral collapse is what you need because I'm experiencing a life threat. So in schools, you know, the, well, before I get to schools, you know, why would we use that life threat? It's where we just don't feel like we have any other solution to the problem. We just need to hide. We need to shut it all down, shut down the prey drive, just be invisible, not be seen, and that'll make the problem go away. Um, so we see that in kids in classrooms where they're kind of numbed out, they're zoning out, um, they're there physically, but they're not there emotionally. Our experience as educators is like, gosh, they're so far away, right? I, I feel like I'm talking, but nothing is landing. And for these kids, it's like, yeah, I'm in a real life threat situation here. I don't think that I can get through this because it's too uncertain. It's too loud. There's too many things that really are telling my nervous system, this is too much for you. And so that's sort of our lowest shutdown response. And then we immobilize response. Then we have a mobilized response that's sort of our the next newest um, defense system. And that offers us two options. We're going to take it down or run away, right? Our fight or flight um, solutions to get rid of a threat. So those, are, those can be big explosive fight responses or they can be big explosive fight responses, but it's where the nervous system says you're in danger and you, you need to get out. You need to figure this out. And so that's our fight flight. And you know, for the kids that we work with with developmental trauma, it's like walking into a classroom is like for them walking into a den of bears, or I guess if in Australia, it's like a, I don't know what you call a group of crocodiles, but it would be like walking into a group of crocodiles and, you know, someone says, no, no, there's no crocodiles here. And the child is, oh, yeah, there really are. And it's just in a human costume. In any moment, that costume is going to come out. And so there's a hypervigilance. There's a sense that danger can happen at any moment. And trauma operates that way. I've been fooled once and I'm not going to be fooled again. So these kids come in with a hyper aroused nervous system that says stay open to threat. So there's no bandwidth left for learning, right? All the energy is going to, to look at where the crocodile is or where it might be coming from or what's going to turn into a crocodile at any moment. So trying to direct a kid who's in their fight flight system, who's constantly neurocepting danger is more danger. Mm -hmm. It's saying, move your attention over here while I teach you something. And they're like, no, 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 no. That, that's not a possibility for me. And the teacher goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Because they don't see the crocodiles, right? It's not dangerous for the teacher, but it's so dangerous for the child in terms of what their nervous system is telling them. And so that can be problematic for learning, right? There's just not a way to settle kids who are experiencing danger everywhere to learn. And then educators can add new danger by being cross with kids for not settling, right? For being agitated or being reactive or not concentrating or moving around, but really recognizing that to sit and listen 
requires a lot of vulnerability and it requires a lot of felt sense of safety. I can only attend to you if I know that I'm in a safe place and the crocodile is not going to come and eat me. So teachers inadvertently, I, I think from a good place, knowing that an education is a good thing for kids, um, might add to the danger by insisting and getting into power struggles because they, they want so desperately for kids to have educations because they see that as a solution mm-hmm. and, and a new trajectory, right? As a new way to have a good life. Mm-hmm. So they could add more danger to that. Um, so we've got our immobilized response and we've got our mobilized response and our newest defense system is our social engagement response, which says, hey, it actually is better for you to stay in connection because we do better together and being on your own is really not going to be good for you. So how do we how do we figure this out in connection? So we've developed tools to negotiate, to collaborate, to say to somebody else, hey, you can I'm not a bear. I'm not a crocodile, I'm not a bear, and I don't perceive you as a crocodile or a bear. And we give these signals that says, you can be close to me without fear. And those signals are generally in the way that we sound, like our tone of voice, our voice prosody, mm-hmm. our facial expressions that are warm, our eye contact that is friendly, our body language that is relaxed, that communicates, hey, we're safe here. We don't have to worry about any danger here. And, you know, connection really is a biological imperative. So we need to find ways to stay in connection when things are difficult. And kids who've had a lot of safety growing up, they know how to do it. The kids who've had a lot of danger, they don't know how to do it. So they don't know how to give signals to teachers that they are not bears or crocodiles. And they don't know how to access responses from adults that says we are not bears or crocodiles. So we end up in these interactions where both are defensive and we move into defensive responding versus relaxed um, ability to have conversations to work something out. So, you know, that, that's sort of the hierarchy. So one of Porges's main themes is, you know, our, our autonomic nervous systems is hierarchically organized. And then he talks about a process of neuroception to different, which is fast, right? In order to know whether we're safe, danger, or life threat, we can't be thinking about it. We need to know immediately. So he talks about neuroception, um, differentiating it from perception, which is a much slower process, you know, involving the integration of the higher brain regions. Neuroception is immediate and operates outside of our awareness. So for many of our kids who've been hurt by relationships, their nervous system has already decided it needs a defensive response before their brains catch up. So these are the kids that I really, truly believe walk into school every day going, I'm going to do a good job today. I'm going to be a good student. I'm going to be a good kid. And then somebody moves too close to them. The teacher uses a stern voice. Someone bumps into them or they don't understand something. And immediately their autonomic nervous system catapults them into a survival response. And it's fight, flight, or freeze. Or bounces between those fight, flight, and freeze responses. And they don't understand why, and the teacher doesn't understand why, right? And this is, you know, to your point in the work that you guys are doing, helping people understand this is a survival response. It's a little bit more than is needed, but this is the problem is that the kids can't differentiate in that moment that the teacher's stern voice does not equal trouble. Mm-hmm. 
A loud voice equals trouble because a loud voice in their history was trouble. Mm. And so they can't afford to be, is this different than the last time? Because that's too much thinking. And, you know, they could be eaten at that moment. So, you know, they're, they're, um, they get catapulted into these ways of behaving and kids get surprised by their nervous system. They get hijacked by it. And then they make sense of it after. Mm -hmm. And the sense that they make is, well, I must just be a crazy kid or a dumb kid or no good throwaway kid, because that's the only reason I know how to make sense of this. And unfortunately, some educators make the same mistake, right? They look at the behavior as one of choice mm. and don't understand that there's no choice involved, you know, in that um, response. So I think one of the things that the polyvagal theory, you know, so if we think about the three main points of the polyvagal theory, it's hierarchically organized. Ideally, we want to use our social engagement system. If that doesn't work, we're going to move to our mobilized response. If that doesn't work, we're going to go to immobilized response. That it is so fast acting, it's outside of our awareness. And the third point that Porges talks about is co-regulation, is that in order to calm a nervous system, we need another nervous system that is not in the same place that our nervous system is. Mm -hmm. So ideally, we need educators in their social engagement system to calm kids who are in their mobilized or immobilized um, nervous system responses. And that's difficult um, because I think that traditionally educators have been taught to manage behavior with consequences and incentives. But what we know is that th the, the behavior that kids have access to emerges from their felt sense of safety. So behaving in what we would consider a socially appropriate manner is, can only emerge from a felt sense of safety. So it can't be operantly conditioned. It can't be consequenced into or wrestled or incentivized into something different without changing the underlying state of the physiology. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a huge thing for educators to understand change the felt sense of safety and you'll change the behavior. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that is through the relationship, is through the co-regulation. So that's where pace fits so beautifully. And I started to talk about pace being rehabilitation for the nervous system in that it allows us to beam in safety signals that says through being playful, accepting, curious, and empathic, which is what pace stands for, I can, I can communicate to you, to your nervous system, that it actually is safe here. It's safe here with me. I can help you in this dangerous situation. And um, that is such an important point that we're not going to change behavior with consequences and incentives. We will for kids who have had lots of safety. They can do it. And kids with developmental trauma will get there. But first they need repetition, 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 repetition of the co-regulation. You know, if you think about a little baby who's five weeks old, we're never gonna say to that baby, okay, you've been crying for two hours, I'm done, pull it together, you're on your own, right? We wouldn't do it. So for our kids with developmental trauma, they really are that, that little in their nervous systems and they need so much support to get through 
situation. Mm-hmm. They, they need co-regulation before they can learn self-regulation. And unfortunately, I don't, it's probably the same in Australia, but certainly in North America, there's a lot of priority on self-regulation right now. And we teach it very cognitively and, and we ask kids to self-regulate before they've had the experience of co-regulation. So PACE in you know, AR Dialogue, it's really a framework to help teachers know how to respond and calm a kid's nervous system so that they can just settle to learn. Yeah, now that, that was really um, fantastic. Shan, you covered lots of different concepts there. Um, one of the things that struck me that you were talking about was this idea that, you know, one of the, uh, perhaps for some teachers, the leading belief around how to help a child is they see the solution as being education and teaching and, and learning. And, and part of, I hope, what we sometimes try to do is to say it's that and its relationships and its safety, you know, to kind of expand on that sort of idea and, you know, and and also this idea, and I think when you sometimes sell that, they think of the felt safety as a very static concept, you know, when they say, you know, where you start to think, and I feel that draw to think of it like that too, where you think, are we there yet? You know, is this there yet? And and in fact, you know, it, you know, it's a, it's a kind of perhaps a place that, you know, the children kind of visit and come back to over time, I, I presume, in relationships. Um, and, and it happens through dialogue and through, you know, some of those right. things. Right. It's It requires so much repetition mm. of those moments of noticing, of seeing, mm. hearing, and valuing, really. Mm. Right. Is that kids who have had developmental trauma are in their mobilized or immobilized part of their defense systems. So that's what they know. That's what they're familiar with. So they tend to pull everybody into that place with them. Mm. And it's such a foreign concept to be relaxed, to be in connection in a way that feels good. I think they're desperate for it, but they can't trust it. And for teachers, I mean, they have a nervous system also and a brain that says, my job is to keep you alive and feeling good. So it's, I think what's so important about trauma-informed education for teachers is helping them understand what is happening in that child so that they can override their own nervous system that says, "Um, it's really not good for you to be in a classroom with someone who's spitting at you. Mm, You should probably leave now. You don't want that student in your class. That doesn't doesn't make you feel good, right? And to really override and stay in that social engagement system to be able to understand that that child is saying, I don't know how to be with you and I'm really scared right now and how to stay in their ventral vagal system, their social engagement system, to stay curious about the child's experience and to stay responsive and to offer them a different alternative and recognize that it's not going to happen overnight. As you said, like it needs repetition, 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 and those baby steps. And that what you might pour in, in your nine months of having that child in your class, you may not see it. Mm. You may not see it for another year or two years, and you might be preparing that child for success the next time they come to to school. You know, for us, it's in September. I think for you guys, it's in January at the beginning of school. And, you know, setting it up for the next person to build on. And that concept of slowing down to speed up is a huge tension for teachers who feel like, 
the solution to being well is to have a really good education, to be literate. And yes, it is so important. We know that kids are not going to do well if they drop out of school, if they're not literate. But as you say, it's the yes and. Yes, they need to get education. And first, they need to have a safety and learn how to just be close to people before they're asked for the additional pressure of learning because that won't be successful. But to do that, I feel like you have to have a common language for teachers to know that they're supported in that because if they're not, they don't have a felt sense of safety, right? They're, they're being evaluated on being able to get kids through benchmarks of how well they read, how well they do math, how well they, they do tests and don't maybe have permission from their administrative team to say, actually, this kid's not there yet. We're gonna, we're gonna actually define their success by can they come into the classroom and sit at the back and play Lego? Like that actually is successful because not a, there's not a child that I've met in my career that does not listen and observe. They might not look like they are, but they're noticing everything. So they're noticing before they're taking the risk to participate. How does it go? How does the teacher sound? How do the other kids get their needs met? How does that teacher bring them in and notice them at the level that they can handle? But that that requires a lot of support. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to the um, the effect of reflective dialogue um, that you mentioned before, Sean, and how the um, you know the pace, the plentifulness acceptance, curiosity, and empathy. What does that actually look like in your belong classroom in terms of helping kids get into that social engagement phase? Right. So so if we start first um, with pace, because pace is sort of a way of being that communicates safety, right? When we are playful, we're really communicating to a child, oh my gosh, I'm just so enjoying you. You are just a delight. And it um, pulls on what we know about intersubjectivity theory, which means that we, we understand ourselves the way that other people see us. So when the adults are around us or delighted in us and enjoying us, then we have to make sense of that. And we can start to begin to see ourselves as enjoyable and delightful, which is a very different narrative than um, kids with developmental trauma typically have, which is I'm a nuisance, I'm a burden, I'm invisible, I'm worthless, because that's often what was communicated in the nonverbals of um, their original attachment figures. So the playfulness is, is sort of a way of saying, gosh, I'm really having fun with you and I'm enjoying with, being with you. And I don't experience you as somebody as a bear because I just wanna hang out with you. It also gives people a break, right? From, from the seriousness of, of things that are hard. And the acceptance is a safety signal because we really respond to not being evaluated, right? That unconditional experience of um, not of behavior. It's not like we're going to accept behavior that's problematic for that child. If they continue that behavior through life, it's really going to be a problem or behavior that's problem for our safety. But we have unconditional acceptance for the underlying emotional experience that if that child is angry, we don't, we're not going to judge that. You get to be angry. We are going to say something about how you're going to show your anger or show your fear or show your worry. But that underlying experience is 
100% accepted and, uh, and, you know, valued. And so we, we like that, you know, we feel less safe when we're evaluated either negatively or positively, right? Especially kids with developmental trauma. And that's a big piece, I think, for educators to understand. Um, we do a lot of influencing by telling people they do a great job. And for kids with developmental trauma, that's such, they struggle with compliments and they can't stretch to that. Or they have a fear of you only want to be with me if I do a good job. And what if I don't do a good job? Am I okay then? Or are you going to leave me? you're going to get angry with me. So it's that real underlying acceptance and, you know, lack of evaluation, which doesn't mean that we don't say good things. And it doesn't mean that we don't have consequences and limits, but it really is targeting what's underneath behavior. And the curiosity too is a safety signal because we're interested. We want to know your experience. And so when we are curious we stay in our ventral vagal, we stay in our social engagement system because if we get to defensive, mobilize or immobilize, we lose our curiosity. So when we're curious about, hey, what are you thinking? Or what's that about? Or what's your experience of that? Or I wonder what might be causing you to feel this way today. Um, it keeps us in our social engagement system, which keeps us more likely to be using a tone that is you know, perceived as a safety signal rather than a danger signal. It will more likely keep our facial expressions softer and communicate to the kid, I really wanna know, I'm really interested in you. So intersubjectively, they feel like they have value. There's something about them that their adult wants to know about, which again is different. And then the empathy part again is sort of an analgesic. It's just a way of saying I'm with you. I'm not trying to change you. I'm not trying to fix you. I I really just am with you in this hard. And you know that that can really just help people immediately move from a defensive response, because so much of our response is trying to get people to understand us. And when we don't feel like people are understanding us, we try harder and we get more irritated and we get bigger in our actions. And if someone goes, oh my gosh, I get it. You're like, okay, thanks for that. And, and it immediately deflates us. It's hard to stay reactive and defensive when someone is open and engaged with us. So that paceful way is often enough to create the safety for kids to stay in their social or to find their social engagement system. Not, you know, Often they haven't found it yet, so they don't know how to stay in it. So to find it, but sometimes we need more. And the AR dialogue is, a, is really a way to have safe conversations. So kids with developmental trauma are really not good at conversation, right? They're really poor, poor at being reciprocal. They're poor at my turn, your turn. And one of the first things that we try to teach them is how to have conversation, right? My turn, your turn. And this is how we figure things out. This is how we, you know, solve problems together in, in conversation, in collaboration, but kids really don't know how to do that. So the experience of being brought into conversation is terrifying for many kids. So they want to avoid it. And it, it gets their nervous system into that danger or life threat mode. And they offer a response that's fight, flight, or freeze. So for us as an adult, it's, a, it's about co-regulating that response and noticing when it's too much slowing it down, calming the nervous system before we move on to having more conversation. And those conversations could be about understanding 
you know, your experience, um, how you think about something, why you did what you did, why someone else did what they did, how it's connected to something in your past. It could be a conversation about anything, but it, the AR dialogue is affective and reflective. So the affective is that part of creating emotional safety and the reflective is about helping kids hone their reflective capacity to understand themselves and understand other people. Because when you've been chased by a bear your whole life, you haven't had the luxury of developing your reflective capacity, right? That, that belongs or is open to kids who've had the luxury of safety because they can think about things and they can wonder about things and they can you know, be bored, but none of that is available if you constantly feel like you're gonna be eaten by that bear or the crocodile. So it's a way of helping kids learn to be reflective all the time being supported by that co-regulatory adult. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we, if, if you have read the book, you know, there'll be examples in there of how do we do that, right? Maintaining a storytelling voice, that prosody and that tone is so very important to communicate safety. Mm -hmm. We know that kids who've had a lot of danger, they hear different frequencies, right? Those muscles around those detached ear bones orient their listening to sounds of threat mm -hmm. and not signs of safety. So they only hear us when we raise our voice, right? And we're stern and then they look at us and then they, you know, the adult is irritated, which confirms from the kid, oh yeah, that's dangerous because now they look up and they hear the, the threat and they see the, the facial expression being irritated. So that storytelling voice is so very important to communicate, uh, I'm not a bear, we're figuring this out, there's no danger here. Um, we name it to tame it, which is Dan Siegel's um, mantra of wondering out loud, I think this might be why you're upset today. I'm just taking a guess about this, but I think it might be this, what do you think? And, you know, we are always more anxious when we don't know. Our brains don't like uncertainty and they don't like unpredictability. So when we help kids anchor what they might be experiencing and organize it for them, then we can move forward with a plan. But if we don't know, we don't have any way to solve the problem. So we name it to tame it a lot. We, and when kids run out of words, which they do often, right? Kids who've had a lot of safety, they know how to articulate. They know how to use their words to regulate their emotions. The kids that we work with that, you know, keep us up at night, well, they only know swear words, right? They, they know those words, but they don't know how to ask for help. They don't know how to articulate their thoughts and feelings. They haven't had that experience. So we have to help them in the same way that we do with toddlers, right? How do toddlers know that mad is mad? because they've had repeated exposure to adults going, oh, you're so mad right now. You're just so upset with me because I said you couldn't have another cookie. And those repeated experiences of their parents organizing their affective experiences, helping them understand why they're mad, help them figure it out. Our kids with developmental trauma haven't had that experience. So they are needing that parenting that toddlers get when they're five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and 15 and 16 and 20. So it's helping adults almost narrate out loud when kids lose their abilities. So we talk about talking for, and we talk about talking about, 
which is ways of keeping conversations going all the time being attuned to is it as much as this kid can handle and when you get to that place at the edge of that window of capacity of tolerance we slow it down you can always come back another day or we can always come back later that day but it's a way of keeping that communication going you know the way that we use touch which is a whole other conversation um but you know we use touch a lot to co-regulate and use of repair then when we don't get it right we say we didn't get that right i need to think about that some more give me you know give me a chance to think about that and i'm going to come back and give you a give you my thoughts on that right and and have adults repair situations rather than constantly expect kids to figure it out it's our job to co-regulate we're higher on that hierarchy and so it's our job to make sure that we create the safety and when we don't we have to say, I'm sorry, we didn't get it right. Rather than expect kids to say, I'm sorry, I didn't get it right. Yeah. Well, there's different ways of, of just keeping that conversation going in a safe way. Yeah, I think that's helpful, Sean. I think one of the things you're talking about there is in terms of incorporating this sort of trauma-informed practice and DDP practices, it's not so much about what you're doing, but how you do it in the class with your relationship. Um, and, and I was talking, thinking about this idea of affective, reflective dialogue, and, and we've been talking a lot to music teachers and um, physical education teachers. And, and one of the things I was struck by what you were saying is the affective component, you know, when, when the relationship isn't, you know, isn't safe enough to do the co-regulating sufficiently, it's often the, you know, the singing, the bottom-up stuff, you know, the singing, the, the art and things like the music. Yeah that offers some of that regulation and safety for you to then have a space to have that reflective dialogue. I, I just wondered about your thoughts about how those things interplay with building safety. Oh, I think they're crucial. And we know more and more about how to work with that bottom-up approach, right? And, you know, how it impacts on our vagus nerves. So um, in terms of, you know, going back to the polyvagal stuff, we know in terms of the hierarchy, that the immobilized response will shut down the immobilized response and the social engagement response will shut down the mobilized response. So when we can have kids move their bodies, it helps them not shut down in shame. When we can help kids learn how to collaborate and navigate and negotiate, then it shuts down the reactive defensive responses, you know, their fight flight responses. So having, you know, gross motor movement can can really be helpful for those kids who are on the like tend to freeze it can be problematic for some kids who tend to hang out more in their mobilized responses because just mobilizing can sort of co-op that nervous system and we all know those kids who get so competitive and can't manage to be in you know a gym class because they're just pushing everybody out the way or they get they're so dysregulated and they pop out of that window of tolerance and it becomes, you know, not a, not a good experience for them. Um, but music, oh my gosh, music is wonderful in terms of, you know, what, what we know calms the nervous system, the breathing, right? The blowing out, the wind instruments, singing, talking, you know, all of those things that can have an impact on our nervous systems in positive calming ways. Um, certainly in the in the belong program when kids first come to us we spend a lot of time outside and a lot of time telling stories 
and saddling kids, just saddling them to learn. And everybody does everything together. So the kids are always outside with their team. And so if they start to look like they're not managing, there's somebody that notices right away, increases the proximity if that's the child will allow and say, hey, I noticed that this is difficult right now. I wonder what this is about, you know, and they, they just use their nervous system to communicate to the child's nervous system. I know you think that there's danger here, but, but take a look at me. I'm not experiencing danger. Let, let me lend you my nervous system, um, which is what babies do, right? They, they orient to their parent to say, do I need to be worried about this? So we teach kids to, you know, if you're not sure, take a look at, you know, whether, whether we're worried or not. But we do a lot of what you're saying, a lot of gross motor activity, a lot of climbing. Uh, we have a play, you know, structure that kids are hanging upside down and playing grounders and, you know, moving all the time. Um, and then lots of storytelling. And we don't have a music program. Um, it's on my wish list. We had started a yoga program just before the pandemic hit. So um, we'll have to get back onto that when, when we can. And we integrate all of these things into moment to moment, right? Mm -hmm. we, we're very, very, um, we call it structured flexibility in that we need structure for our program because kids are not gonna do well with a lack of structure and unpredictability, but we're ready to pivot at any moment. You know, if the group needs something different or an individual needs something different, you know, we might all of a sudden go, okay, let's, let's head outside. We're going outside now. That's what we need. Or you put an academic task away for another day while we share, you know, a snack or, you know, we, we move to play or something. Yeah. I'm mindful of the time too, Sean. I wanted to ask you, you were talking about the challenge of teachers staying in the sort of social engagement system themselves. Um, and that's a, such a lovely expression, you know, let me lend you my nervous system, <laughs> you know, like this idea of operating safety. Well, what are your thoughts about, you know, that seems like a pretty tough ask um, to kind of, con you know, I can, I can almost imagine, you know, teachers working really hard to keep themselves there given all the demands of the classroom. What are your thoughts about what helps teachers with being able to do that and what sustains them with that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, understanding that our nervous systems are, are you know, have the same job as a kid's nervous system, right, is to keep us feeling okay and problem solve when we feel like we're in danger or life threat. So, you know, part of it is providing knowledge and education. So recognizing that when we are in relationship, there's two parts of that relationship, right? And the relationship is always bigger than the sum of its part. But what's happening in the kid's nervous system is going to impact a teacher's nervous system. It can't not. In the same way as what's happening in a teacher's nervous system is going to impact the child's nervous system. It can't not. So helping teachers put their own oxygen mask on first to be really aware of what's happening for them. And, and, you know, using that information to help them know what might be happening for a child. You know, teachers may be surprised that they're really irritated with a kid or don't like a kid and helping them have a conversation about what that's about. You know, what, you know, what do you, what do you, why do you think that this, this is a new kind of feeling for you or a new way of being for you? Um, helping them be curious about it, which again, keeps you sort of more in your ventral system 
helping teachers understand the concept of block care, that when you are constantly trying to establish a relationship and it is so constantly non-reciprocated and not just in, I mean, sometimes in kind of more polite distanced ways of, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to ignore you. And sometimes in really loud, angry ways, if you know, F you, I'm not interested. I'm going to throw something at you every time you try to come near me. That's really, really hard on our brains. And over time, our brains are going to, whether we like it or not, give us a solution and it stops us caring. So Dan Hughes and John Balin talked about block care and we have these caretaking systems that are gonna shut down predictably in relationships that are not reciprocal. So the first thing we might notice is we don't wanna approach that kid. We don't wanna go and see how they are. We don't wanna ask them how their day was. We don't wanna be near them. And so we, and then we don't get any enjoyment or you might notice that we don't want to go to school that day. Like we, we are, we're really happy that that kid's not in school that day, right? And these kinds of, of thoughts are, are persistent in our, in our brains. And we might start to, um, so our approach system wears down, our reward system wears down where we're just not, it's just not doing it for us. We have thoughts of quitting teaching and become a flower seller or, you know, a barista or something. And, you know, you're surprised by that because you thought you loved teaching, but you're really not liking it. And we're not getting dopamine, right? That says this is enjoyable. And then we start reading kids incorrectly and giving them negative meaning. And then hopefully we hang on by our executive function system that says, you still got to do your job here. You can't yell at a kid. You can't shame a kid. You can't hit a kid. You can't lock them out of your classroom you got to figure out something, but it's like a contract that never ends and you wish you'd never signed and you don't like the way that you are and you might be more re reactive, more defensive, less creative, less persistent and feel like those parts of yourself will never come back. And it's a really painful place to be. So helping teachers understand block care is going to happen even to healthy brains. It happens perhaps more quickly and more persistently with, with brains that, you know, have had some trauma, but it's gonna happen to all of us and not, you know, so that there's a, a way to understand it that is not a shame-based narrative. And then to find ways to stay in that social engagement system, like you said, that who else do you have near you? Who, whose nervous system can you borrow? And this is the work that you and Kay are doing, right? Where do you go for information that helps you understand these kids and yourself and the difficult, difficult job that this is? How do you, you know, who do you surround yourself? Who are your main connections that help you keep going? And, you know, those safe connections, both professional and outside of your professional, like where do you have that you can go that you switch off? What's your passion outside of your teaching? Is it scuba diving? Is it gardening? Is it music? Something where you just can put your nervous system in a rest and restore so that you can come back and do that hard job. Like it's, it's hard. Yeah. So those kinds, it's, in some ways, it's a parallel process to, you know, helping kids' nervous systems, keeping your own well-treated. Yeah. And I was thinking about, um, speaking of parallel processes, Sean, I was thinking about the 
you know, I think sometimes it is a luxury to have people in your life where you can have those affective reflective dialogues, you know, in professional or personal kind of contexts. Um, and I think that helps with being able to provide that, but also to be kind of stay regulated for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, and it's a practice. It's not something that you can do or not do, That's right. right? It's something that we have to continuously be attentive to. Mm -hmm. right? We have days where we're tired or, you know, not doing as well, or you have a particularly challenging class, you know, for most educators, not just one kid that needs so much attention. It's five or 10. And so often you feel like you're doing too much with too little. And that's the tension, right? And accepting and having pace for yourself, having those relationships, like you said, that you can have with other people where people are peaceful to you. And that you, you know that you're not going to be judged when you go and you go like, I can't do this today. Or, you know, I just wanted to scream at that kid. I didn't, but I wanted to and have people go, yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Sean, thank you so much. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of all of this and um, you've been so generous with your, the information you've shared. Um, I was just wondering, are there any sort of resources or contact information you want to um, direct our listeners to? Um, gosh, there's so many wonderful resources. Um, the, there are some resources that are on my website, traumainformededucation.ca, that are available for download. Um, that helps, you know, with some of the concepts that we've talked about. There's some info sheets in what does PACE sound like and a little bit more about the Arbalong program. Um, if you're interested in the, the DDP framework for how to respond, I really feel that DDP gives us the how to respond. Then there's the belonging book and, you know, also um, the book with Kim um, about working with relational trauma in schools. Bruce Perry's work is, you know, he does lots of lovely work in schools. Uh, Louise Balmer, they just, you know, read widely and, you know, know that you're doing the best that you can do. And some days are not so good as others and to be forgiving, but to be persist, persisting. Is that the word? Yes, I think it is. Yeah. And speaking persisting. of persisting, thank you for your patience this morning with all our technology problems. No worries. We really That's appreciate the state it. of this year. Yes, it is a bit. Thank you so much, Shan. Um, I hope we can keep in touch. And thank you for your work. The, the book, um, Belonging, highly recommended for people listening. It's so practical, full of great stories. So um, thank you so much. And I hope we can keep in touch. I hope so too. Thank you for your, all your work. That was our interview with Dr. Sean Phillips. To learn more about trauma-informed education, visit our website, tipbs.com. That's T-I-P-B-S dot com. If you enjoyed this episode, consider providing us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Your feedback makes all the difference. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.